All right, if you have your books, we're on the final paragraph of 266. If you have a different edition, then just this is chapter 30, the law of miracles. Thus far, and for the last entire class, we've been tuning into just light. Master says, Yogananda-ji says, light is the most subtlest of creations. And therefore, it's in, in a certain sense the closest to the divine reality we're going to get. And he goes into this really, you know, scientific uh, explanation of light. We see how light is both a wave and a particle. That dual nature exists in light. It can be a vibration or it can become matter. And it changes in accordance to how we observe it, what we expect from it. And this is the, you can say, the crux of how the masters therefore use light to materialize anything, to create anything, to change, in fact, the dream itself of life. And we were using Einstein's theory a lot, where Einstein uses the speed of light as a constant. So that's another aspect of light. It's the closest to the most absolute reality we're going to get in this world. Its speed is so high that for our finite mind, that's as close as an actual constant we're going to be able to work with in this world. And as part of his theory, which is E equals MC square, which is a very popular formula, essentially, Master was talking about no object in creation thus far can achieve the speed of light, can get to that state of absoluteness, get to that state of constancy, because we've seen thus far, everything's relative. Everything is dual, except light and that speed that it maintains throughout, through any medium, through any material. But nobody can get to that absolute reality because in order to do so, our mass would have to be infinite. That's what E equals MC square means. If I want to get to C, then M has to be of an infinite nature. Therefore, energy has to be infinite because the energy and mass are equivalent to a certain degree. So that's where he finally comes and he says here, this conception brings us to the law of miracles. This idea that we're going to have to become infinite in order to actually be able to express and then manipulate to a certain degree. That's what miracles are, creation itself. And he says, this is a paragraph we read, but we'll just go into it so we get a context. The masters who are able to materialize and dematerialize their bodies or any other object and to move with the velocity of light and to utilize the creative light rays in bringing into instant visibility any physical manifestation. So that could be Christ telling Lazarus to, you know, rise from the dead and suddenly now this guy who was dead for three days is awake. We saw Sri Yukteswar doing the same. We'll see Yogananda Ji doing the same. Lahiri Mahasaya did the same. Swami Pranabhananda is manifesting another body and sending a message out to somebody else far away. So these are all just very kind of rare examples that we've only just read about. But we don't know what else these masters are doing, in fact, in our lives. We really have no idea of what we are seeing. Is it real or not? For all we know, things that happen in our lives are very much the play of the masters, materializing certain people, certain circumstances. We're just going to assume it's all real because that's how we see this world. 
We just think anything I'm seeing, anything I'm touching, anything I'm experiencing is real. But the masters know that this light game can be changed to manufacture and to manifest absolutely anything. And so how do they do that? They have fulfilled the Einsteinian condition because their mass is infinite. What does that mean? The consciousness of a perfected yogi is effortlessly identified not with a narrow body, but with the universal structure. That's the state of samadhi, isn't it? That's what we're trying to experience in meditation. We enter into our meditation and we're trying to withdraw away from the body. We're trying to withdraw away from all external realities to get at least a glimpse of that experience that says, I'm not just this body. I'm not just this mind. I'm not just this personality. Sometimes we say these things like, I am the soul and I am this infinite consciousness. But at the end of the day, you know, we act as if we're just this body. We act as if we have such a limited reality. You know, just the thought that you're going to get a little sick makes us so afraid. Just the thought that death may come someday suddenly grips us with so much fear. A little cut on our body sends us in a tizzy sometimes. So we can, you know, affirm with whatever <laughs> great valor that we are some infinite reality. But until we don't experience that inside ourselves, nothing's going to really change. You know, we're still going to be bound by the same duality, which is what this chapter started with. The nature of this universe is dual. You experience one thing, you're going to have to experience the other. And that's very much our experience at this time. He who knows himself, I'm just moving on a little bit because uh, we're going to be reading a lot of Einstein's theories otherwise. He who knows himself as the omnipresent spirit is no longer subject to the rigidities of a body in time and space. So you remember we also spoke about the gravitational force. What did we say about gravity? We said gravity is that force around any object that bends the space-time continuum. That's what Einstein realized, that when you're, whenever any energy is passing through a gravitational flow, time changes. And we gave the example of that movie of Interstellar, where this man's you know, out far away and he's close to a black hole, and so for an hour for him was decades for people on Earth. And that's not just a made-up reality, that's very much true. Because the speed of light remains continuous, but because the space-time continuum has bent, the distance now is longer, therefore time has to be shortened, whether that makes sense to you or not. So the larger the mass of an object, the larger the gravitational force. We know this. The sun has a greater gravitational force than Earth. Jupiter has a greater gravitational force than Earth. The moon has a lesser gravitational force than Earth. Only because of the mass. We have a much lesser gravitational. We have gravity, do you know that? Around us, because we are a mass, every atom has gravity around it. It's just its magnetic field. That's what our gravitational force is. And that's why people gravitate towards each other, don't they? You attract those people of like mind. You repel those people who aren't of like mind. We attract situations. Karma responds to our gravity, which means it responds to our magnetic field. But because we are a tiny mass, we've not yet experienced ourselves as an infinite mass. Our energy is so limited. When we have low energy, we have a low gravitational pull. So when we are down, when we're upset, when we're you know in a mood, 
then we attract those things that vibrate with that level of energy. When we're upbeat, when we're joyful, when we're energetic, when we're willing to do whatever it takes, then we experience and receive that kind of an experience from the universe. So here, when the master's body, or in fact their consciousness in this particular case, becomes infinite, they can bend space and time indefinitely, like to whatever flow they want. They can speed up time, they can slow down time. In fact, time no longer exists when your mass is infinite. That is why Master Yogananda on any self-realized master can make this claim. I know all thoughts of all men past, present, to come. Can you imagine that? 6,000 years from now, some guy is born and Yogananda ji can know the thoughts he's going to think then. Not just what he's going to do, not just he's going to act and maybe he'll get married or he's going to buy a new car. His thoughts that we think are the most sacred, most intimate, most hidden reality that nobody is privy to. Because time just doesn't exist in a state of infinity. Like Baba Gino, keeping his body like perfectly, you know, immortal. Yeah. Like where time and space doesn't it's affect you. Interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I mean, around him, maybe time just doesn't yeah. exist. No, so there's no decay in his body. Nothing's happening. Like time's not passing through him. Mm -hmm. Like nothing's passing through him because his gravitational pull must be so humongous. You can think of Babaji probably communicating with some light beings, you know, billions of galaxies away. We just don't know what's going on in that reality. We could all just be a projection of Babaji's thought. We wouldn't even know it because everything's just light. I mean, everything's just a play of light in this entire universe. Everything is a play of light, as I was telling you. Our ability to see depends on light. You take away light, you go into a dark room, do you see anything? No. Why not? Because until light's not being reflected from this world, we're unable to create an image in our mind. We depend on light even to perceive this very universe. So whatever Babaji is doing, you and I have no idea, but boy, he must be doing, he must be having a lot of fun with this. Fiat lux, and there was light. This is from Genesis. Fiat lux means let there be light. And there was light. God's first command to his ordered creation. This is the third verse of the beginning of the Old Testament. Genesis, how the world was created. The first verse is, in the beginning was the word. And the second verse is, and the word was with God and the word was God. For us, the word is the Om vibration. Before, in singularity, what came into manifestation was Om, the first dual reality of creation, first vibration. And then from there, God says, let there be light. From Om vibration, the first manifestation of Om became light. Let there be light and there was light. On the beams of this immaterial medium occur all divine manifestations. Devotees of every age testify to the appearance of God as flame and light. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. So again, from the Bible, this is 
Timothy 1. A yogi who has who through perfect meditation has merged his consciousness with the creator perceives the cosmical essence as light. So when you that you know we keep talking about this experience where we'll become one with all creation which I guess we'll be waiting for perhaps a little while longer but when that experience comes Yogananda says you start to perceive the essence of this entire cosmos as pure light. This is what Yogananda would say to us. I think Narayani mentioned this in the last class when he'd look at his disciples sometimes he says if you only knew how beautiful you are, how I see you, I see you all as light. And that's what the masters are seeing us all as. And everything inside us is like different shades and variations of light. Our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our energy, our life force. It's all just different kind of variations of light. And that's how they recognize us. That's how they see us and say, ah, this is what this guy... That's how they know our karma so well. It's not like they're looking at us and then having to like peer into my thoughts and then try to like calculate, let me see, you know, Jupiter is kaha hai. They don't have to work on that level. They're just connecting with the light that's inside us. And that light's intelligent. That light knows exactly what it's doing. That light shows us how much darkness there is inside us, how much light there is inside us, how much more there is to go what experiences are going to participate in that process. It's all just written inside us and that's what they see. I mean, and they don't have to peer in, they don't have need x-ray vision for that. They're just, that's how they perceive all of creation. So he says here, which is fun, to, to him, which is the perfected yogi, there is no difference between the light rays composing water and the light rays composing land. So for them, it's exactly the same. That's why Christ could walk on water. Because he's like, huh, this is just like the light rays of land. So all I need to do is convince myself this is that particular vibration and there it is. I can do whatever with it I want. Free from matter consciousness and free from the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time, a master transfers his body of light with equal ease over the light rays of earth, water, fire or air. That's why they can levitate, that's why they can't be harmed, that's why they can materialize here, dematerialize here, materialize anywhere else. Long concentration on the liberating spiritual eye has enabled the yogi to destroy all delusions concerning matter and its gravitational weight. Henceforth, he sees the universe as an essentially undifferentiated mass of light. Now, I know a lot of this is just a little heavy, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I don't know if I want to keep you know, listening to something that's just, I can't quite fully even grasp. I mean, no matter how much we explain it, it's just, it's still just a little beyond even our ability to comprehend. But the reason Yogananda has gone into such detail here is just to break the vagueness of it all. Sometimes the spiritual path, it's just too fuzzy for us. We just keep thinking, Ki, kabhi na kabhi, you know, something will happen. And we're looking for the easiest way out, even on the spiritual path. Yogananda is really trying to show that everything we do follows the same principles, the same laws. We're going to have to make our mass infinite. They're not going to magically one day become infinite. You know, we're, we're always kind of... We have this, uh, I don't know what that consciousness might be called, but perhaps like a rescue consciousness that one day I'll just be rescued. You know, if I just cry enough and if I just shout enough and if I just beg enough, 
somewhere without having to do the work. But Yogananda really wants us to understand that this is the process. A master is not doing something special or magical. He's just created an awareness where he's able to actually perceive this light. And once you do that, then, as they say, the whole world is your oyster. I want to continue forward, just pass a few things because otherwise we'll get into Dr. L.T. Trolland of Harvard, what he says. Through a master's divine knowledge of light phenomena... Oh, before I go though, I do want to point this out. Long concentration on the liberating spiritual eye. This is a very key kind of... He's just thrown it in there. But this is a major kind of technique, you can say, for us to find that liberation. Master said, if you can hold your awareness even for 24 hours continuously at the point between the eyebrows, you could become a master right after that. And if you've ever tried it, you'll realize and know how hard that is. I was thinking about Jesus' words where one of his main statements, uh, almost a direction of where the yogi should always be, he said, if thy eye be single, your whole body will be filled with light. I mean, that's one of his main teachings. And what he was saying was, if we are able to concentrate all our energy, all our life force, all the prana, single-pointedly, at the point between the eyebrows, and see even a slightly dot of light, if we can hold on to over that light and with our visualization, with our willpower, keep merging gradually, you know, bit by bit into that light and eventually merge and expand into that light, we will have the experience and the realization that we are indeed made of light. We are light. So Christ and all these great ones give us techniques how to start remembering who we truly are. And everything resides here at the point between the eyebrows. Many people come to us that after a meditation, oh, I saw a little bit, you know, that light. And we always say, wonderful, stick to it, just keep thinking and meditating and recreating that light at the point between the eyebrows because that glimpse of it has the potential and the power to give you really an omnipresent experience. So if you see a little bit of light at the point between the eyebrows, know that you are already on that journey of merging yourself with that light. I mean, no wonder why everyone who has had a near-death experience, mm. they say that the moment they are losing that body consciousness, they go into this tunnel and almost magnetically they are drawn to that light. But they, they, they see that as going through one tunnel and just, you know, trying to merge with that welcoming, loving, nurturing uh, light. And that's what we are trying to recreate in our daily meditations. Just the exit of the body consciousness 
and lovingly, willingly, joyfully blending with that light. And at the beginning, it might be a bit scary because we are so attached with our body, with who we are, with our loved ones, with our ashram that we just don't want to leave. We just like don't want to go to the light. But eventually that's our divine destiny. So it will be only a matter of time that we will, you know, all these veils will be removed and I'll be able to see you as light and you'll be able to able to see us as light and that would be another Fat moment. <laughs> then we'll read this chapter again. <laughs> and we'll be like, ah, now it makes sense to me. <laughs> Through a master's divine knowledge of light phenomena, he can instantly project into perceptible manifestation the ubiquitous light atoms. The ubiquitous means omnipresent, that which is always around. So light atoms are always around. In the masters, they just take these light atoms and they rearrange it to create anything. He goes on to say the actual form of the projection, whether it be a tree, a medicine, a human body, is in conformance with the yogi's powers of will and visualization. That's a key word here. Mm -hmm. Will and visualization. For the last three days, I've been in the middle of a recording session where I've been recording a series of courses um, on Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga and one such class that I was doing is on visualization and it's been really fun in this particular course you know they said you have to give us some techniques and you have to show us how visualization needs to be done because a lot of us have done and tried visualization you know it's a very common thing like visualize the highest you know, experience you want for yourself or that success that you're looking for or that dream that you would like to see fulfilled but oftentimes it doesn't actually manifest for us does it because we don't have enough power in our visualization. Oftentimes we think about dreams and we'll talk a little bit more about that and how real a dream feels. And that's usually because when we go into sleep, that dream consciousness is being fed by all the life force that exits and interiorizes from our body when we relax completely, which is again what we're trying to recreate in meditation, but a little more dynamically. And Yogananda did this thing with visualization. He was actually, interestingly, he talked quite a bit about it and have his disciples do this one thing in which he'd sit in a room and he'd kind of see the entire room and he'd close his eyes and in his eyes he'd try to recreate the room exactly. He says, you keep doing this until whether your eyes are closed or open, you're seeing the exact same room. Now, if I ask you in the room that you are in, close your eyes and try to, you know, recreate that room. I mean, we're barely going to get any, some little fuzzy hotspot, you know, like, mm, I think, you know, it's something like this. And we'll almost see the room kind of as a miniature projection, whereas he expects us to see the room as from the perspective we are in. As if when I'm closing my room, I'm still sitting in that same vision of the room. And when I open my eyes and I'm still in the same and this is a fun thing to do and try because it will really hone your skills of visualization. When you can get to the point that you can convince your mind, whether with open eyes or closed eyes, that you're in this exact same space, then perhaps we'll get a little glimpse of what it means to visualize something. 
Yogananda took this a step further. He says, I would open and close my eyes until whether my eyes are closed or open, I'm seeing the exact same room. Then he says, with closed eyes, I'll create something in my image, in my mind. Say I put an extra cushion on that couch so that when I open my eyes, that cushion will be there. So that's the power of visualization. Of course, in their particular case, they're able to, as we're learning here, manipulate those light atoms. But that's the process they're using. The will, because it takes a lot of will to be able to see things exactly as they are. Because if I were to try it right now, just see the people in the room and the thing, I can barely get like even a semblance of an image that makes sense to me. I just know just very roughly there's a wall here. I think there's a wall there. There's some people scattered. There's maybe a couch in the corner. I think it's somewhat blue, a fuzzy blue color. I mean, I can't really see every texture. I can't see the flutter of the curtains and so on and so forth. And you can do this really with anything you want. Take the book, take something in your hand, close your eyes, see if you can visualize it so clearly that no matter if your eyes are open or closed, it's exactly, it feels exactly the same. Then perhaps we'll get a little sense of what we could do with that image. In a man's, oh, there we go, into dreams. In a man's dream consciousness, where he has loosened in his sleep, loosened in sleep his clutch on the egotistical limitations that daily hem him round, the omnipotence of his mind has a nightly demonstration. I know the words are a little <laughs> rounded, but that's what he's saying. When we go to sleep, you don't remember who you are in your sleep. You're no longer this body. You're no longer the work that you do. You're no longer a father or a mother or a husband. You are whoever that dream is created. You could be anything in that dream if you wanted to. Lo, there in the dream stand long dead friends, the remotest continents, you could be visiting any country, you could be in Africa during in your dream, the resurrected scenes of his childhood. With that free and unconditioned consciousness known to all men in the phenomenon of dreams, the God-tuned master has forged a never-severed link. So like we have to wait to get into a dream world in order to manifest this. For a master, they're just manifesting exactly that same reality right here. Innocent of all personal motives and employing the creative will bestowed on him by the creator, a yogi rearranges the light atoms of the universe to satisfy any sincere prayer of a devotee. Now that's the sweetest thing I read in all this whole chapter. You know, because... If I had the power to visualize and manifest anything I wanted, boy, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be very selfish with that power. <laughs> I'd be manifesting all sorts of things that I would perhaps would like, you know, a better car, a bigger house or whatever. I mean, I, I think some aspects of that have gone beyond, but there are still so many desires hidden in the recesses of our subconscious mind. And if I had the power to fulfill them all, there's a very good chance that I would use this power to do that. Here instead, he says, innocent of all personal motives. See, that's why this power isn't even ours yet. Because it cannot be given so much power as long as there is a selfish intention. Why? Because having a selfish intention means you're still trapped in the ego 
as long as you're trapped in the ego, which means you're still identified with a limited body, as long as you're identified with a limited body, your mass cannot be infinite. So no matter what we do, the moment we try to see it through the prism of the ego, we've already pretty much, you know, hit ourselves with that hammer of duality. But that's beautiful, isn't it? There's no personal motive. It's not like Yogananda said, well, I can, since I can make a cushion on that couch, you know, why don't I just make six cushions and make it look much prettier so I don't have to buy it from the store? You know, that's not what they're going to use these powers for. They will only use to rearrange the light atoms of the universe to satisfy any sincere prayer of a devotee. That's what their power is for, to satisfy the sincere prayer of a devotee. And that's what I said in the beginning. Knowing this, anything could be God's miracle in your life. You could have met a person on the street just randomly and you'll never see them again. And that could have been an entire projection of Babaji's or of Master or of somebody. You could have had any experience from the moment you were born till now. And you don't know which of those experiences were real and which of those experiences were manifested by the Masters for you. And isn't it a lovely thought to just think of everything being manifested by the Masters for us? That's how you can live in faith. That's how we can live in absolute trust and relaxation. That's how no fear can exist when you know that the Masters, they're doing it all for us all the time. Every person, every situation, is just a play of light that I know my Guru could have manifested easily just for me, just for my benefit. How beautiful is that? There's this story of um, Yogananda's, one of his disciples, he was in fact the second most advanced disciple, I don't know, on whatever basis you can judge that, his name was Oliver Black. He was visiting Yogananda in his, was it Encinitas or Mount yeah, Washington? In one of his ashrams, maybe in Sunitas. Um, and it was raining really, really hard that day. And one of the disciples comes to his room and knocks on his door and says, you know, Master says, Master is asking for you to go for a walk for with him walk. or a drive with him. And he looks out and he's like, well, it's raining so hard. I mean, why does Master want to go for a walk now? <laughs> and then anyway, but of course, the Guru has called. So he steps out. The moment he steps out of the house, the sun is shining. It's crystal clear there's not even any rain on the ground it's not like even that the rain just stopped or something it's dry everywhere no matter how far he sees and there's master standing there and he smiles at him and says just for you Oliver that's it I changed the dream for you I thought we should spend some time together so there it was raining and now it's not and it's not like I just stopped the rain because that's my power. I changed the entire dream concept. There is no water anymore. There is no rain anymore. The sun's out. Everything's shining and beautiful and clean and clear just so that we could go for a walk together, just so that we can be together. And that could be happening to all of us all the time. I choose to believe that. I choose to live that way. This is what's happening to me all the time. Every day, Master is saying, just for you, Shurjo, just for you, Narayani, just for you, whoever you are. And wouldn't that be a sweet way to live? 
For this purpose were man and creation made, that he should rise up as master of Maya, knowing his dominion over the cosmos. If you ever ask yourself, what's the purpose of life? What am I here for? What should I do? You know, and we get caught up in the purpose, like, am I, is my purpose to be really, you know, well known? And am I going to create some big hospital for people? Will my name live on for all eternity? But this is it. For this purpose were man and creation made. You know, it's also, why does this world exist? Why did God, in this one of our complaints, why did God do it in the first place? For this purpose were man and creation made, that he should rise up as master of Maya, knowing his dominion over the cosmos. And that's important for us to keep that in mind every day. When we complain about little things, when we get upset so easily, when you know some tiny little thing in our life isn't working, when the faucet is not, <laughs> the water is not coming through it, or whatever it is. We remember this, for this purpose was man and creation made, that he may rise up to be master of all Maya. Beautiful, isn't it? Anything you want to add, Narayani? No. And this is again master quoting from the Bible. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So when we read these things in scriptures, and it just sounds a little, ah, you know, that's sweet, but that's just what it is. God says, let us make man in our image. Let this consciousness that we carry be that divine consciousness with the potential to in fact have dominion over all creation. Of course, we then choose not to live that way and weirdly God allows us to live by that choice and says, sure, you know, you don't want dominion, you don't want complete control over all of Maya, you don't want to be master of yourself. All right, no big deal. Fortunately, they have a few people who, who can fulfill that for them. But all of us are heading in that direction, whether consciously or not, whether wanting to or not. And hopefully, not hopefully in fact, eventually, although our Guru said, eventually, eventually, why not now? But for most of us, perhaps, that eventually is still a strong, <laughs> strong possibility. There's a little section here that I'm just going to condense into yeah. a story. This is Master talking in 1915, right after he entered the Swami order, still continuing on the concept of dreams. He said while he was meditating one day, suddenly in that meditation, he gets transported into the consciousness of another man. And this man happens to be a captain somewhere in Europe in the middle of World War I. And he's on a boat and suddenly a cannon you know, ball comes and destroys his boat. And he's in the water and, and when he say he, this is Yogananda in him, experiencing this. He's in the bottom, you know, he just somehow survives, he makes it onto the shore. And the moment he makes it onto the shore, a stray bullet comes and strikes him on the chest and, well, pretty much hits him dead. And just as he's dying, Yogananda suddenly feels, oh my goodness, this is it, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. 
and again he opens his eyes and he finds himself back at at home in garpa road in the attic in his father's house just meditating and he checks his entire body he says he inhales and exhales to make sure everything is right a body free from any bullet hole in the heart i rocked to and fro inhaling and exhaling to assure myself i was alive and amidst these self congratulations i love how he writes again i found my consciousness transferred to the captain's dead body by the gory shore utter confusion of mind came upon me so this is an amazing experience he just had you know he is sitting to meditate boom his consciousness is now with somebody else not just with anybody else but somebody who's just about to die gets hit by a bullet experiences death and suddenly he's back in his own body he's getting all excited that yeah i didn't die and then he's back in the captain's body lying dead on the shore and well you can imagine that there'll be a little confusion in that moment and he says lord i prayed am i dead or alive a dazzling play of light filled the whole horizon a soft rumbling vibration formed itself into words i love that a soft rumbling vibration formed themselves into words what has life or death to do with light in the image of my light i have made you the relativities of life and death belong to the cosmic dream behold your dreamless being awake my child awake beautiful isn't it and what a vivid experience wow i was thinking here about um, how this concept of identifying you know the soul memory of whether we are alive or we are living a dream uh, yogananda used uh, this story this illustration that explains so beautiful what each one of us go through daily and he shared about this story of a farmer who was in his field next to a tree just in a very thoughtful you know state it's just very deeply thinking and pondering and at that moment his wife came running and weeping and just you know in a state of anxiety and tells the farmer you know our only son has been killed by a cobra and he's dead and this is just like i can't even believe this is happening and the farmer looks at her but doesn't reply and the wife gets very offended and she asks are you heartless or what it is i mean don't you realize our only son has just been killed and the farmer very centered and very thoughtful replied last night i had a dream and in that dream i was a king and i had seven sons and i have absolutely everything in my domain i was just you know the owner of everything and i was you know so pleased and so in love with my children and all of them were killed by cobras so it was very very painful experience so now this morning when i woke up from that dream and now you are asking me i wonder myself should i be uh, crying 
and you know, in grief for those seven sons I lost in my dream? Or should I be crying for this son that you are talking about, about this dream? And it's a fascinating story to contemplate that for this farmer, I mean, what he experienced in his subconscious world and what he was experiencing in this material world was exactly the same. And it felt to him as a dream. And for many of us on a daily basis, we take, thing, we take things so personally, and uh, you know, we lose something, or you know, uh, this harmonious situation comes to us, or how we perceive ourselves, and we just make such a big drama, forgetting that <laughs> we are not even real, even our own face, body, hair. It's just a condensation of light. I mean, we don't really even exist in, you know, world's dream. And uh, I know it's a little bit difficult to understand, but if we start remembering on a daily basis that everything we go through, every experience that we, you know, have to face on a daily basis are not really real. In fact, some of the experiences we have with other people or the insights are not even from this lifetime. Nothing really has happened between you and me, but suddenly you have this, you know, inside that perhaps this person look at me in this way or, you know, I don't really like, but it's not even real. It's something that has nothing to do with this lifetime. So we get mixed up between our subconscious and our past experiences versus with this reality and the people we are interacting with on a daily basis. And we start mixing yeah. all these experiences where we don't know anymore if what I'm feeling for that person is even real. And that's where misunderstandings happen because we are not able to distinguish anymore the heart's feeling and where are they coming from and where they were originated from this lifetime, from eight lifetimes before this one, who knows? So um, I was thinking about uh, that, like, wow, I just need to remember that what Shujo does to me every day. <laughs> you know, I just shouldn't take it personally. It's just not a big deal. You know, it doesn't even exist. <laughs> what really exists is how I respond to that, because that really generates a wave in the ether that it sets into motion, and it goes somewhere. And that energy, wherever it goes, it will come back to me. So um, something to think about it and meditate. And I thought that was a great story it was. <laughs> to share. And in my next lifetime, I won't take <laughs> things personally either. Good. <laughs> okay, but this one I will. Let's continue. As steps in man's awakening, now we come back to science a little bit again. As steps in man's awakening, the Lord inspires scientists to discover at the right time and place the secrets of his creation. So little by little, everything that's happening, what we would call, you know, scientific discovery or greater development, 
it's just our own consciousness able to perceive just a little bit more just a little bit more and we're in an age that you know as Swami Sri Yukteswar said we're in an ascending age called the Dwapar Yug of course traditionally we believe we're in Kaliyug and after Kaliyug's lakhs and lakhs of years whatever it is will magically and miraculously arrive Satyug you know from complete darkness to complete light but that never happens does it consciousness like anything in this world only gradually shifts. If I plant a seed today, I can't expect it to be a tree tomorrow. It has to gradually grow. If your child was born yesterday, it's not going to become an adult tomorrow. It'll gradually grow. You don't go from night to day back to night instantaneously. No, we go through all the forms where that shift happens gradually. So it's the same for our consciousness. There is an ascending upward arc and then there is a descending downward arc as well. And Dwapar Yuga represents the second stage of that ascension. And we can see that, we can see all around us, we can see from the very chapter we are reading that man's consciousness has changed. Let's go back 150, 200 years ago and it was a very, very different world. Let's go back 50 years ago to a certain degree. It was a very different world. Whereas if you go to the previous 2000 years for at least a couple thousand years, the world was very similar. They still fought with swords and sticks and they rode horses and, you know, that whole experience from just a whatever BC to to the Middle and Dark Ages was very similar. It was only around the 1700 where that cusp actually happened, where the shift from Kaliyug to Dwapar, as per Swami Sri Yukteswar's calculations, is when Newton first discovers the law of gravity and uh, Copernicus and Galileo discover that the Earth is not the center of the world, that the Earth is not flat and Earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is the center of our solar system, so on and so forth. Suddenly there was a shift and an awareness that never existed before that. And since then that awareness has been taking leaps and bounds so that every passing year we're like, you know, like last year feels like the middle ages now. Because like the phones are better, the communication is better and Yogananda here is writing in the 1940s. So this is, you know, for us, even the things that he's writing here seem like so old. But that's the whole process. That as man's consciousness grows, his ability to perceive, and that's what science is. Because what is science? Science is man's hope to understand how this universe functions. It is a search for truth, just as the spiritual path is a search for truth. The only difference is, Science is limited to Maya itself. It can only work within the confines of this dualistic reality. And the spiritual science is what lies beyond Maya. What was that state of consciousness of bliss that I would like to see in my life? Many modern discoveries help men to apprehend the cosmos as a varied expression of one power, light. I love the word apprehend, not comprehend. Comprehend is mental. Apprehend is like you hold on to it, you know, you caught it. You've caught that understanding. It has become yours entirely. And that one power is light guided by divine intelligence. The wonders of the motion picture, movies, of radio, of television, of radar, of the photoelectric cell, 
of atomic energies are all based on the electromagnetic phenomena of light. All scientific discoveries right now majorly depend on this concept of light. That's what the television is. Can you imagine light energy passing through these cables and then manifesting as images on our screen? I mean, you know, we think of it as so normal, but if you actually were to just sit with it and try to decode how this works, knowing that they go in packets of ones and zeros, but then how does that ones and zero get translated into images and sound and movement that are so engrossing, so lifelike, so believable? And then those zeros and ones are the same zeros and ones of the lifetrons and the thoughttrons, as Yogananda called them, that make up this universe. And they seem so believable and so lifelike and so engrossing. It's kind of the same thing, isn't it? And so thanks to science today, if we are open to a greater reality, that's the key here, we can start to see, wait a minute, if this can be faked, if the moon landing can be faked or whatever, if you know, we're having UFOs visiting us now, I mean, whatever it is, you take these conspiracy theories and we're so obsessed with conspiracy theories today, whether it's vaccines to the virus to the whoever's, and we've got 600 alternate stories to them, you know, why can't we sit with the greatest conspiracy theory of all times, Maya, and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is any of this even real? But not from a nihilistic perspective, that if nothing's real, let me just do anything I want, and what difference does any of this make? No, from a very much of a scientific perspective. If, in fact, none of this is real, then what is? You know, that's the spiritual search. If this isn't it, then what is it? Because my consciousness is real. For me to be able to perceive, to want to perceive, to want to feel, to in fact feel, that's not being faked at all. And each of us have that unique experience. You can't fake your feelings and I can't fake mine. We can pretend and show them differently, but how we experience them internally is very much real. So what enlivens that? What empowers that? That becomes the yogi's real search. And that's really the scientist's search as well. And that's where we have to marry these two realities. The external world helps us understand the internal world. And I hope, if nothing else from this chapter, if we couldn't really grasp light and gravity and Einstein and whoever else, if we can just grasp this, there is more to it than meets the eye. There's so much more that we don't understand about ourselves, about this universe, about the world, about how my phone works, how my food is digestive. You know, I, it is so much I just don't know. And so if I'm honest enough, I'll say, well, let me find out. Let me see what is behind all of this. So even though we have a couple of pages left, <laughs> I think we can <laughs> I don't think we need to go through this next class. Okay, let's see the cosmic motion picture and all oh, right, which other formulas are we going to come with? I think, I think we Yogananda has idea. made his yes. point. But please do finish the chapter. At your own time, you know, it's still just a very little part left. And uh, come to that conclusion that Master wants us to come to. I was thinking, just a thought came, uh, the other day one of our devotees came to the ashram and she of course is a disciple, a Kriyaban, and she was sharing that 
one day throughout this week, she was cleaning the house while a talk uh, from Swami Kriyananda was just playing out loud. And she has two kids, and you know, the kids were playing or doing their homework, I don't know. But she was just cleaning the house, and at some point in that talk, Swami Kriyananda uh, says about this life and this life being a dream and nothing is really real and you know eventually we shouldn't just be too worried about what happens to us and start developing a consciousness of lightness and not taking things too personally. So at some point she says that one of her kids, you know at nine years old, he comes to her, to Sarvottama, and he asked her, asks her, Mom, is this really the life that we are living a dream? <laughs> is, this, is this real? I mean, so what about we are going to school and we are doing all this homework? I mean, is this a dream? A dream? And of course, I mean, Sarvottama, not just as a mother, but as a disciple of Yogananda, uh, someone that is trying to live up by the teachings of her guru and her understanding, she said like she felt a little bit uncomfortable because what I'm going to reply to my son of nine years old, but yet I have to tell him the truth. I have to start sharing with him from a larger perspective what's life all about. Because if he starts getting it from a very young age, you know, eventually he will be able to live his life differently. So she felt compelled to reply, yes, this life is a dream. And the only thing that will matter is how well you behave, uh, whatever happens to you, how well you respond to life, uh, how you know courageously to, you face you know betrayals and other kids at the school that are poking at you or laughing at you. And she she felt like I was a little bit afraid that he was going to ask me more about <laughs> it because I didn't feel equipped and adequate to reply him at such a philosophical level. But she realized the importance to raise our children and to share with them from a very young age uh, what's really life is all about from its highest. And she said that once she replied, yes, life is a dream and you know how you behave is what really matters, he was ready for that answer. He took it at heart and he said, okay, mom, I'll think about it. Mm. I mean, isn't it fascinating? Sometimes we undermine and we underestimate kids because we think they are young and they are, you know, very childish and they don't understand, but the souls who are coming nowadays in this world are very mature soul. So if you are a person who knows slightly, you know, the philosophy 
of life, even if you have not experienced it, I mean, as even if we have not experienced, but if we understand a little bit what's the purpose of life, what's all about, if we know concepts of karma and reincarnation, you know, when someone comes to you, even you think that is, you know, he's not ready to absorb these concepts, he may. And this could be the greatest service you can do, not just to your children, but perhaps to your mate. You know, maybe your mate, your driver, might not be, you know, following a spiritual path or committed to it, but it is our responsibility when we talk to other people, when we share, if we have gained a little bit of understanding, we should help them at that level as well. And don't just, you know, brush it off and answer as, ah, he will understand. If we know truth, if we are trying to understand truth, if we are trying to apply truth in our lives, let's help to those around us also to live by that truth. And of course, ultimately, for all of us who are meditating, who are practicing Kriya Yoga, it will be wonderful if we start meditating on light and keep recreating that light at the point between the eyebrows. So we'll feel expanding ever more into that light. And finally, as Yogananda said, awake, my children, awake and know that we are light.